Attention. This podcast contains subject matter that may not be suitable for all ages. Listener discretion is advised. From out of the darkness, you hear voices that send shivers down your spine. That feeling of dread is undeniable when you notice the monster under the bed is trembling. The aliens are scrambling to get back to the mothership, and the vampires are refusing to rise. Your reptilian overlords are pleased to force on you two humans they swear are not their captives. Your hosts, Michael and Wendy. This is Eerie and Absurd. Oh, I've already been recording. Are you serious? Oh yeah, you said fuck like seven times. Welcome back to Eerie and Absurd. I am Wendy. And I'm Mike. And we are so glad that you're back here with us. This episode is late and we do apologize. I'm not sorry. Well, I am because I'd like to stay consistent on Tuesday publishing, but we have both been slightly sick. Not like Corona sick, but just, you know, nasty, ugly, allergy sick. I'm going to go first. Yeah, go first. And then you're going to go second. I'll go second. Okay. I'm going to tell the story of Sharon Ken or Kenny. I'm going to say Kenny because a lot of the things that I saw said Kenny. Um, Also known as La Pistolera. Uh, My main sources are from Crime Magazine, J.J. Maloney, um, Mail Factors Registry, Mark Gribben, and I did get my pictures from Wikipedia and Murderpedia. Excuse me. (laughs) Murderpedia. Is Murderpedia begging for money, too, when you're on the site? Uh, I think they do ask for a donation, but it's not the same. Like, it's similar to Wikipedia, but it's a good site to, you know, give money to. Anyways, uh, but yes, they do sometimes ask for donations, or you can make one, but it's not the same as Wikipedia. Anyways, back to Sharon. You ready? I'm ready. Okay. I'm excited to tell you this story. James Kinney and Sharon Hall met during the summer of 1956 at a church social event. Sharon was 16 and James was 22. They dated until James returned to college in the fall. So the two exchanged letters back and forth until Sharon sends a letter stating that she's pregnant with James's child. James leaves school and marries Sharon on October 8th of 1956. Unfortunately for James, his new bride was a liar and her pregnancy was super fake. Pretty quickly, Sharon realizes her lie is about to be exposed and claims that she has lost the baby. However, James and Sharon do end up having a daughter named Dana by late 1957. Unfortunately, by the time the couple's second son, Troy, arrives, Sharon is regularly having an affair with a man named John Boldiz. She's a liar, and she's cheating on her husband. How old is she? Um, so they met when she was 16. And so I guess they got married. Yes. Yeah, so like when she was 16, young. 17. Yeah, yeah very she's... young. On the afternoon of March 19th, 1960, James Kenny is found by Sharon with a gunshot wound to the back of his head. Standing beside James holding a high standard 22 pistol is Dana, James and Sharon's two-year-old daughter. Sharon quickly calls the police, but by the time the ambulance arrives, James has died. Once the Jackson County Sheriff's deputies arrive to the scene and question Sharon, she's crying and stating she heard her daughter asking, Daddy, how does this thing work? Daddy, how does it work? And then she heard a gunshot. 
The deputies were able to find the gun located on the bed beside James. Sharon explained that her husband often left guns lying around in easy reach of children. James's parents were also able to confirm this to be true when they were questioned by police. So he's leaving his guns around. And um, apparently the two-year-old shot him. Right. That's the story. That's the story so far. The police were not able to recover any fingerprints from the pistol due to it being recently oiled. A paraffin test for gunshot residue was not performed on Sharon or Nana due to the belief the test was unreliable. So a paraffin test, since I'd never heard it before, is when a person dips their hands into wax and once the wax has cooled and been removed, the wax is subjected to a chemical analysis for gunshot residue. And it's apparently not reliable. Police end up returning to the home to speak with Sharon and to show Dana the gun. So I found two different stories on what happened after they showed Dana the gun. Now, she's two. One stated she played with the safety of the gun, which led them to to believe she did shoot her father. And then the other stated that Dana was able to pull the trigger on a gun matching the one that killed her father. Either way, she touched it and they believed that Dana shot her father. Sharon collected her husband's life insurance policy and proceeds to buy a brand new Ford Thunderbird. On April 18th of 1960, Sharon takes her new car to the dealership to have air conditioning installed. The salesman, a man named Walter Jones, convinces Sharon to get a newer model car with air conditioning already installed. After returning several times to the dealership for various car reasons, Sharon begins having an affair with Walter. This is little less than a month after her husband's death. So, Walter Jones... In 1960, Walter Jones Jr. is an ex-Marine and a car salesman, while his wife and high school sweetheart, Patricia, is a file clerk working for the IRS. The couple had two children and appeared to lead a normal, happy life. Despite his seemingly normal, happy marriage and children, Walter had a wandering eye. He was known to have one. On April 18th, Walter met Sharon when she bought a Ford Thunderbird from his dealership. The two began an affair shortly thereafter. Sharon viewed Walter as a prospect for a second husband, but he was uninterested in leaving Patricia. Sometime in May, Sharon takes a trip to visit family in Washington, and when she returns, she informs Walter that she's pregnant with his child. Fully thinking that Walter will divorce his wife and marrying her, but she ends up extremely surprised and disappointed when Walter ends the affair. So Patricia, who is Walter's wife, On May 27th, Patricia is reported missing by Walter when she does not come home the night of May 26th. Walter starts calling Patricia's friends and co-workers to see if anyone's seen his wife. When Walter spoke with the work carpool that Patricia participated in, they were able to confirm that Patricia asked them to be dropped off at a street corner due to receiving a call from a woman who wanted to meet with her that afternoon. The carpool dropped her off and stated seeing a woman waiting for Patricia that they didn't they didn't recognize they'd never seen her before. After providing Walter with a description of the driver, Walter calls Sharon because it match, she matches the description. Yeah. Sharon confirmed she contacted Patricia to discuss her husband having an affair with Sharon's sister. She's lying. She doesn't have a sister. Oh, yeah, she's crazy. Sharon states the last she saw Patricia was when she dropped her off near the Joneses' residence. Walter ends up meeting with Sharon in person in hopes to get more information from Sharon on Patricia's whereabouts. Walter even admits to holding an object to Sharon's throat, demanding that she tell him where she left Patricia. I say object due to one article says he used a knife and another says he used a key. It was a dildo. 
Michael. <laughs> no. <laughs> Either way, he threatened her and her response was to call up her boyfriend, John Boldis, and have him help her look for Patricia. So here they're going to go look for her. <laughs> Sounds like a terrible idea. Right? A little after midnight on May 28th, Patricia's body is found by Sharon and John about a mile outside of town. Patricia has one shot to the abdomen, two shots to her shoulder, and one shot to her head. Immediately, Sharon, John, and Walter are questioned by the police. Both John and Walter give written statements that they both had a relationship with Sharon. Both men agreed to a lie detector test and were found to be truthful. Sharon, however, refused to take a lie detector and refused to sign a written statement and would only provide an oral statement for police. Sharon was arrested on June 1st, 1960 for the murder of Patricia Jones without the authorities having a murder weapon or direct evidence tying Sharon to the crime scene. Yeah, so it's going to be a problem, sounds like. Already, yeah. The same day, the Jackson County Sheriff's Office requested that the prosecutors consider a second murder charge in relation to the death of James Kinney. Lucky for Sharon, her mother worked as a secretary for the law firm Quinn and Peebles, which at the time was one of the most renowned criminal law firms in Kansas City. Sharon's lawyer filed a writ of habeas corpus, and by that afternoon, she was released on $20,000 bail. Due to Sharon's pregnancy, so she was actually pregnant, oh. the trial for Patricia's murder was delayed until June of 1961. So for a year, because she was arrested June 1960, and so they delay it until the next year. Police were able to rule out the 22 caliber pistol that killed James as the murder weapon in Patricia's death since the police still had that gun. However, a man that worked with Sharon admitted to secretly buying a 22 caliber pistol the beginning of May that she had requested be kept secret. She asked him to buy her a gun and keep it secret. Police were unable to locate that gun, but when they searched Sharon's house, they found an empty box they believed once held a gun. At first, Sharon claimed she lost the gun on a trip to Washington. She then stated that the gun had simply disappeared. Walter was taken into custody on June 2nd as a material witness to the case, but was freed the same day on $2,000 bond. So, Patricia's initial autopsy was criticized by the police and the prosecutors due to the coroner not recovering all the bullets and the contents of her stomach not being tested. Dr. Hugh Owens, who had performed the autopsy, argued that he had recovered one of the three bullets and because the body had been prepared by an undertaker prior to autopsy, any chemical test on her stomach contents would have been useless. Owens added, when asked, that he had not seen any food in the stomach at autopsy. On June 17th, Patricia's body was exhumed to collect the bullets that had been left behind at the original autopsy, as well as gather any tissue or stomach samples that were still available. Sharon's arraignment was held on July the 11th, which resulted in bail being denied. However, days later, the Kansas City Court of Appeals struck down the ruling based on the prosecution's reliance on circumstantial evidence. She was freed on $24,000 bond on July the 18th. After a delay in her trial date due to her advanced pregnancy, Sharon gave birth to a daughter she named Marla Christine on January 16th of 1961. The trial for Patricia Jones began mid-June of 1961. During Patricia's trial, the prosecution was able to prove that Sharon had bought a 22 caliber pistol that she claimed to have lost during her visit to Washington. However, during the search of her home, the police were able to find an empty box for a 22 caliber high-standard pistol. This 22 
was not the same 22 that was used to kill James. That pistol was still in police custody at the Jackson County Sheriff's Department. After the prosecution called 27 witnesses and the defense called 14 witnesses, Sharon Kinney was acquitted with applause from the courtroom. One juror named Ogden Stevens even asked for her autograph, which she was photographed giving to him. She was then immediately returned to her jail cell to await trial for the murder of her husband. Isn't it weird how, like, when people... Why are they clapping? Uh, yeah, it's weird Why that they, they clap happy? when it sounds like she they murdered probably her. did it. Yeah. Yeah. So now we're to trial number two. So this is James. Jury selection began on January 8th of 1962. During this trial, Sharon's longtime lover, John Boldes, was the prosecution's star witness. In his original grand jury testimony, he claimed that Sharon offered to pay him $1,000 to kill James. But during the trial, he stated she could have been joking. So he kind of backtracked a little bit once he was in there. Yeah. The prosecution even argued that due to the marriage coming to an end and Sharon's adultery being the cause, she knew she could not collect any life insurance policies unless she was still married to him. The defense focused on the prosecution having only circumstantial evidence and noted that the police investigation determined it was an obvious accident. The defense even had to remind the jury that no matter how unpleasant they considered Sharon's moral character to be, it was their obligation to assume innocence until she was proven guilty. Because back then, you know, women didn't act like that. They didn't cheat on their husbands or that's that was the perceived notion. You didn't do that, you know. Mm-hmm. And so if you acted bad in any way, it was very, it was frowned on. The defense even attacked the reliability of Boldest's testimony by calling him a poor, mixed-up kid who would sign anything. Sharon's attorneys also presented testimony from other witnesses supporting the theory that Dana had shot her father, including statements that guns had been regularly left within reach at the family home and that she was able to pull the triggers on toy guns with stiffer trigger pulls than the weapon that caused James's death. I just don't know that, I mean, I don't know. Is that enough? To say, oh, yeah, this two-year-old did it. Well, I guess it's plausible, and that's the problem. That's what gets me. It's baby hands. Yeah. That, that, but, I mean, children have pulled triggers on guns before. Sure. And it, when they've been left out and stuff like that. So I don't want to completely dismiss it. But, I mean, how sad. Yeah. So... After five and a half hours of deliberation, the trial ended in a conviction on January the 11th of 1962. Sharon was formally sentenced in April of that same year and sentenced to life in prison at the Missouri Reformatory for Women. Despite the guilty verdict, James's family continued to believe Sharon was innocent and told reporters on the day of the verdict, we can't find it in our hearts to say anything bad about her and we still don't feel that she committed murder. So like his parents don't think that she did it. The next week, Kenny's lawyers requested that she be released on bond, supported by a community petition signed by 132 supporters of her innocence. The motion was denied on the basis of first-degree murder not being a bailable offense. A subsequent defense motion requested that the conviction be vacated because the jury had delivered its verdict based on surmise and speculation rather than substantial evidence listing a series of procedural errors that Sharon's counsel alleged had taken place before and during the trial, which included a juror taking incomplete notes, disputes over Boldes' testimony, and an incorrect number of potential jurors being provided for selection. So they didn't have enough. I just thought that was silly. Incomplete notes. 
You got to take notes as a juror? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> good luck with that. My bosses can tell you I'm not good at note taking. <laughs> so they don't have me take notes. <laughs> I should start bringing my Yeti and we'll just <laughs> record the whole session. Yeah. All right. The motion was denied in April of 1962, but appealed to the Missouri Supreme Court, which reversed the conviction in March of 1963 and ordered a new trial on the basis that her defense was denied adequate peremptory challenges during jury selection in her trial. Sharon was then denied opportunity for bail in May of 1963, but that ruling was overturned by July and she was released on $25,000 bond posted by her brother. So she's back out She's now. Yeah, she served a little bit of time, but not much at all. The I mean, a year or two. The state requested the Missouri Supreme Court reconsider its position on Sharon's conviction. This request was granted, but in October of 1963, that hearing resulted in further grounds being found for a new trial. This was based on the prosecutor having been allowed to cross-examine a prosecution witness. A second request for a rehearing on the validity of the conviction was denied by the Missouri Supreme Court. After this, Sharon and her children moved in with her mother and awaited the start of her new trial. All right, so this is the third trial. Thank you for hanging in there. I appreciate it. The yeah. second trial, I know I said third, now I'm saying second. <laughs> the second trial in the death of her husband began on March 23rd of 1964. The jury selection and proceedings were initially barred from the public, but the restriction was loosened and journalists were allowed into the courtroom eventually. The jury selection took 14 hours, starting at 9 a.m. and ending near midnight. The all-man jury was immediately sequestered, but... A mistrial was declared days later when it was discovered that one of the jurors had at one time retained one of the prosecutor's law partners. So he had re- had him on retainer. Yeah, so he was a client. <laughs> and it was a mistrial. So now we're to the fourth trial for Sharon. But this is the third trial in regards to her husband. This trial math has really got me all out of sorts. I know. I should have like had you write notes. I need to, yeah, <laughs> take notes. Okay. This began on June the 29th. Assistant Prosecutor Donald L. Mason declared at jury selection that he intended to death qualify the jury, a process in which a prosecutor peremptorily challenges any juror who automatically opposes the death penalty. Once again, jury selection took more than 12 hours. Boldis' testimony in this trial remained contradictory as to whether he believed Sharon's $1,000 offer had been intended seriously. But this time, he added that after James's death, Sharon had asked that Boldis not tell authorities about her offer. A new witness, which was a female acquaintance of Sharon's, testified that she had once joked that the woman should get rid of the woman's old man like Sharon did. But defense cross-examination highlighted inconsistencies between this testimony and a similar quote the woman had offered at a previous deposition. She's got one joke. One joke, that's it. For the first time, Sharon took the stand on the last day of this trial to issue a denial of all charges. The all-male jury deadlocked 7-4 to in favor of acquittal in this trial, resulting in a second mistrial. The court set a fourth trial date for the murder of James for October of 1964. All right. So, this heifer has already got her mistrial again. She's going for a fourth trial in relation to her husband's death, which will in total be her fifth trial. So now 
we're going to go to Mexico. Out on a $25,000 bond that was posted by James's parents, Sharon travels to Mexico posing as the wife of Francis Samuel Pugliese using the name Jeanette Pugliese. I'm probably not saying that correctly. That's close enough. The couple stated their intentions were to get married while they're in Mexico. After crossing the border, Sharon ends up buying a pistol under the pretext that she was uncomfortable being in a foreign country. Hold on. Is it a twenty-two? I don't know. It didn't say. So listen, why is she buying so many guns? Well, to be fair, she is in Mexico. It's dangerous. That's not a reason to buy a gun in Mexico. Hmm. I guess it depends on what part of Mexico you're in. On September 18th, 1964, Sharon left the hotel that she was sharing with Francis. So this is a side note. I found different, there's varying information. So one, she left to either get money because they were running low. Two, she got, she left to get medicine that she needed. And three, um, her and Francis apparently got in a fight and she was pissed and left. Those were the reasons. Like, I have no idea. I'm assuming her story changed every time, or his did. But there were three different reasons why she left. Either way, Sharon ended up at a bar meeting Francisco Paredes Ordonos, and then ended up in his motel room. So he is a he's there on holiday. He's a Mexican American, so he's down there. Wait, he's on vacation. Yeah. Why do you call it holiday? That's what they call it in England. I didn't Are mean you, to. What? I lost my mind. I've been watching too much the BBC channel. Maybe. Anyways, so she she meets Francisco at a bar and then ends up back at his hotel room. And again, according to Sharon, there's two reasons she went back there. One, she went to see photographs that he wanted to show her. Or the other excuse was she started to feel ill and Francisco took her back to his room to recover. I'm sorry, but either one of those don't sound like it's okay. Yeah. <laughs> I don't want to see photos back at your room. <laughs> I feel bad. I want to go to my room. <laughs> Where is Francis? Where is, why is he not here? He's on holiday. <laughs> so back at his hotel room, this is Francisco. Back at his hotel room, she stated that he started to make sexual advances towards her, which forced her to fire her gun in an attempt to protect herself. She she shot Francisco twice in the heart, killing him and wounding a hotel employee manager who came running in after hearing the gunshots. The manager then wrestled the gun away from her, locked her in the motel room so she couldn't get away and called the police. The police, once they got there and they questioned her, rejected Sharon's events of what occurred and instead theorized that she intended to rob Francisco and when he resisted, she killed him. Yep. Mexico said, "Uh, uh-uh. now we're gonna go to her Mexican trial." So, the <laughs> so she can't stop going to trial. I need her to stop killing people. When police searched Sharon's motel room, they ended up arresting Francis, who was eventually deported for illegally entering the country and for having unregistered firearms. During the search, they found two pistols. One of them was a rusted twenty-two caliber high standard pistol. Don Mason, who was an assistant Jackson County prosecutor at the time, flew to Mexico with the intention of retrieving the gun, but the Mexican police refused to turn the gun over. However, they did a test fire and gave the slugs and shell casings to Mason. Ballistic tests determined it was the same gun that killed Patricia Jones. 
and the serial number on the gun matched the empty box recovered from Sharon's home prior to trial in the Joneses' case. Since Sharon had already been acquitted of Patricia's murder, she could not be retried under double jeopardy. What the F? Yeah, that's how it works. Oh, is that not damn-ass irritating, though? Yeah, that sounds like she's about to get it in Mexico. We'll find out, won't we? So after sitting in jail for one year, Sharon was sentenced to 10 years in prison. She appealed the conviction. However, the Superior Court of Mexico upheld her murder conviction and actually increased her sentence from 10 to 13 years, citing her original sentence was too lenient. So they <laughs> they gave her longer after she did <laughs> they these gave people. her more time. Sharon returned to the prison to serve out her sentence, which is where she received her nickname, La Pistolera, the Gunfighter. We're not done. On December 7th of 1969, Sharon was not present for the 5 p.m. roll call. Her absence was not officially noted until she also failed to show up at a second roll call later that evening. The news of her escape was not reported to Mexico City Police until 2 o'clock the following morning, which a manhunt was then arranged. U.S. authorities, including the FBI, were alerted to Sharon's escape and the Mexican authorities believed that she may work her way back into the U.S. However, the FBI noted that it was unlikely to have jurisdiction in the case. Because she didn't do anything wrong. <laughs> right. On our side, you know, technically she's waiting to go to trial for her fifth time over there. But overall, you know, that's their problem. Initial police speculation was that Sharon had bribed guards to look the other way while she escaped because an unusual blackout had been reported at the prison at the approximate time of her escape. Investigation showed that a door that should have been locked had been left unsecured and further questioning of prison guards and administration showed that oversight at the prison was generally lax and that it was staffed by fewer guards than it should have been. News outlets reported numerous theories around Sharon's escape, including one, she had bribed prison guards. Two, she may have enlisted the help of a supposed boyfriend who was a local policeman. Three, her mother had been involved in the escape plan. What the hell? I couldn't even find any more information on that. They're like, just making stuff up. <laughs> She took a hot air balloon. Right. Um, four, a former Mexican Secret Service agent had assisted in the escape. But why? Five, she may have disguised herself as a man to help herself escape. Come on. And number six, another theory, which is a more updated theory, speculates that Francisco's family helped her escape and then killed her. Oh. Isn't that something? The intensive manhunt for Sharon was short-lived, and by December 18th, the Mexican Secret Service and the Mexico City District Attorney's Office both reported they were no longer involved in searching for the escaped prisoner. However, the federal district attorney was reporting that responsibility for the hunt belonged to the city district attorney's office. So both of them are like, not ours, not ours, we're not looking for her, it's, their, it's, it's supposed to be their job. So despite vowing to keep the case open and their investigation running until Sharon was back in custody, authorities were forced to admit that by the end of December 1969 that they had run out of leads to pursue. When Sharon failed to appear for her fourth trial for the murder of her husband, a warrant was issued for her arrest in October of 1964. Sixty-five years later, it is still outstanding, making it the oldest outstanding murder warrant known to exist in the Kansas City area. Sharon's status in the Mexican system also remains outstanding. 
Although authorities have pointed out that if she were recaptured, she would only have to serve out the remainder of her sentence since jailbreak was not a crime under Mexican law at the time of her escape. So more than 50 years after her escape, Sharon Kinney remains at large, her whereabouts and fate completely unknown. Oh, I'm going to have to see a picture of this woman. I have one. That was the husband she killed. Oh, she is kind of cute. No, not so That was much her Mexican there. jail picture. Yeah, she looks like a dude there. So yeah, maybe she escaped as a guy. Maybe. So yeah, so she's still at large. Nobody knows where she is. That is that's a weird story. Right? Yeah, it's weird. Like What do you think happened to her? I don't even know. I I mean, she may have escaped, or maybe the blackout was Francisco's family came in, got her ass, and then was like, nope. Shot her with a twenty two pistol. Maybe. You think she got away? I'm not sure. Some of the authorities believe that she had already made her way down to Guatemala. And apparently she was really good at speaking Spanish at this point. She's still missing. Nobody knows where she is. Yeah. Your turn. She's probably dead. Maybe. I mean, she could be. Either old age or maybe somebody in Mexico got her. I don't know. So you finally did your story. You're quickie creepy. I mean. Wait, what? (laughs) 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 You're... Creepy quickie. <laughs> yep. So mine's about the Wendigo. You know what a Wendigo is? Uh, tell me what it is. In the north woods of Minnesota, the forests of the Great Lake region and the central regions of Canada is said to live a malevolent being called a Wendigo. This creature may appear as a monster with some characteristics of human, or as a spirit who has possessed a human being and made to become monstrous. It is historically associated with cannibalism, murder, and insatiable greed. The word Wendigo roughly translates to the evil spirit that devours mankind. According to the legends, a Wendigo is created whenever a human resorts to cannibalism to survive. In the past, this occurred more often when Indians and settlers found themselves stranded in the bitter snow and ice of the North Woods. Sometimes stranded for days, any survivors might have felt compelled to cannibalize the dead in order to survive. Other versions of the legend cite that humans who display extreme greed, gluttony, and excess might also be possessed by a Wendigo. So it served as a a method of encouraging cooperation and moderation. Okay. Stop eating all the corn. Yeah. Don't eat your brother. Also correct. (laughs) (laughs) Native Americans' versions of the creature spoke of a gigantic spirit over 15 feet tall that once had been human but had been transformed into a creature by the use of magic. It is often portrayed as having the body of man and the head of a deer. Though all of the descriptions of the creature vary slightly, the Wendigo is generally said to have glowing eyes, long yellowed fangs, huge claws, and overly long tongues. Sometimes they are described as having shallow yellowish skin and other times depicted as being covered in matted hair. The creature is said to have a number of skills and powers, including stealth. It is a near-perfect hunter, knows and uses every inch of its territory, and can control the weather through the use of dark magic. They are also portrayed as simultaneously gluttonous and emaciated from starvation. So they just, they look all... They eat in excess, but then they're also, but then they look... Emaciated. Oh, wow. Ooh. They sound disgusting. Different versions of the Wendigo legend say different things about his speed and agility. Some claim he's unusually fast and can endure walking for long periods of time. 
even in harsh winter conditions. Others say he walks with a more haggard manner as if he's fallen apart. But speed wouldn't be a necessary skill for a monster of this nature. Unlike other carnivores, the Wendigo doesn't rely on pursuing his prey in order to capture and eat it. One of his creepiest traits is the ability to mimic human voices. He uses this skill to lure people in and draw them away from civilization. Once they are isolated in the depths of the wilderness, he attacks and feasts on them. Wendigos are said to be cursed to wander the land, eternally seeking to fulfill their voracious appetite for human flesh, and if there is nothing left to eat, it starves to death. The legend lends its name to the disputed modern medical term Wendigo psychosis, which is considered by some psychiatrists to be a syndrome that creates an intense craving for human flesh and a fear of becoming a cannibal. Ironically, this psychosis is said to occur within people living around the Great Lakes of Canada and the United States. Wendigo psychosis usually develops in the winter in individuals who are isolated by heavy snow for long periods. The initial symptoms are poor appetite, nausea, and vomiting. Subsequently, the individual develops a delusion of being transformed into a Wendigo monster. People who have Wendigo psychosis increasingly see others around them as being edible. At the same time, they have an exaggerated fear of becoming cannibals. The most common response when a person showed signs of Wendigo psychosis was a curing attempt by traditional native healers. In cases of the past, if these attempts failed, and if the possessed person began to threaten those around them or act violently or antisocially, they were executed. Oh, dang. There have been reports regarding the psychosis dating back hundreds of years. One documented case occurred in 1878 when a Plains Cree trapper from Alberta named Swift Runner suffered one of the worst cases known. Swift Runner was a trader with the Hudson's Bay Company who was married and a father of six children. In 1875, he served as a guide for the Northwest Mounted Police. During the winter of 1878-1879, Swift Runner and his family were starving along with numerous other Cree families. His eldest son was the first to die of starvation, and at some point, Swift Runner succumbed to Wendigo psychosis. Though emergency food supplies were available at Hudson's Bay Company's post, some 25 miles away, he did not attempt to travel there. Rather, he killed the remaining members of his family and consumed them. He eventually confessed and was executed by authorities at Fort Saskatchewan. A Wendigo allegedly made a number of appearances near a town called Rosu in northern Minnesota from the late 1800s through the 1920s. Each time that it was reported, an unexpected death followed and finally it was seen no more. Another well-known case involving Wendigo psychosis was that of Jack Fiddler, an Oe Cree chief and medicine man known for his powers at defeating Wendigos. Fiddler claimed to have defeated 14 Wendigos during his lifetime. Some of these creatures were said to have been sent by enemy shamans and others were members of his own band who had been taken with the insatiable, incurable desire to eat human flesh. In the latter case, Fiddler was usually asked by family members to kill a very sick loved one before they turned Wendigo. Fiddler's own brother, Peter Flett, was killed after turning Wendigo when the food ran out on a trading expedition. Hudson's Bay Company traders, the Cree, and the missionaries were well aware of the Wendigo legend, though they often explained it as a mental illness or superstition. Regardless, several incidents of people turning Wendigo and eating human flesh are documented in the records of the company. 
1907, Fiddler and his brother Joseph were arrested by the Canadian authorities for murder. Jack committed suicide, but Joseph was tried and sentenced to life in prison. He ultimately was granted a pardon, but died three days later in jail before receiving the news. Oh, what? Yeah. I wonder how he died. It didn't say. I don't know. It was nasty back then. He probably just died. Yeah. It's probably, he's probably like 27. It's time. Yeah, he's an old man. Yeah. What was he going to do? Trying to make it to 30? Yeah, I don't think so. The frequency of Wendigo psychosis cases decreased sharply in the 20th century as the Native Americans came into greater and greater contact with Western ideology. However, Wendigo creature sightings are still reported, especially in northern Ontario and around the town of Kenora, where it has allegedly been spotted by traders, trackers, and trappers for decades. The vast majority of supposed Wendigo sightings happened between the 1800s and 1920s, but every so often an alleged sighting emerges. Most recently, in 2019, mysterious howls in the Canadian wilderness led some to question whether they were caused by the infamous beasts. One hiker who was present said, I've heard many animals in the wild, but nothing like this. Much like other legendary beasts, the Wendigo remains a fixture in pop culture in modern times. The creature has been referenced and sometimes even depicted in a variety of hit television shows, including Supernatural, Grimm, and Charmed. There are even a couple of lakes today named after the beast, including Lake Wendigo in Minnesota and Wendigo Lake in Wisconsin. But those who believe in the physical Wendigo think he might still be out there in the woods. And underneath that terrifying, flesh-eating demon, there might still be a human man who was once just a hungry hunter. And that's it. That's the Wendigo. That sounds terribly scary. That sounds awful. A lot of these legends and stuff, uh, they're just to keep you from doing, in this case, eating your buddy. If you're dying of starvation, that's where the lore comes from. Mm-hmm. Um, but you were talking about TV shows where they had talked about the Wendigo. I was looking that because it reminded me. I, I don't know if you remember. I watched that show on Netflix. It's a French show. So it has the subtitles. It's called Black Spot. But the creature in there was very similar to the Wendigo. Because I kept when you were describing, I was like, I've seen a show about that. That was not American. And it's Black Spot on Netflix. It's very good. Very good. Anyways, so I thought that was great. Thanks. And I apologize that we were late. It's all Wendy's fault. We can all agree on that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. I agree. Either way, thank you for joining us. We appreciate it. Also, on the Instagram page, Jenny, who I know, had made the comment, I think they're sifting through that without gloves on as they're going through the person that self-combusted. Oh, yeah. And it does look like that. And I thought, oh, my gosh. But they actually have gloves on. It's uh, those leather work gloves. I looked up more pictures. But if you look, you can see that it's like this, those leather standard issued leather work gloves that have like the dark uh, cuff on them at the end. Okay. But they look, they're like skin colored looking, but it's just leather, brown leather. I keep meaning to respond on Instagram and I haven't done it. Until next time. If you're going camping, maybe take a fat kid with you. <gasps> no. <laughs> you mean for the wind to get again, not you. <laughs> you can definitely outrun the fat kid. Oh, my gosh. No. Bye. Until next time, fellow Absurdians, remember, everything you've heard is true. Monsters are real. And the strangers in black are not a figment of your imagination. Don't forget to subscribe and rate us on iTunes or your favorite podcast streaming service. Do you have a story you want to share? Contact us at eerieandabsurd at gmail.com or visit our website at eerieandabsurd.com to submit a suggestion. 
You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram, both at eerie underscore absurd.